standing, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And if, you're, if you are visiting, uh, just letting you know that I've been preaching through a series, uh, a series through the book of Mark. And uh, we come here to chapter 11. And uh, this is uh, a well-known passage of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Mark 11. Hear God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would give to each of us ears to hear, open hearts that are receptive to receive your word, and that even as we have just sung, that that word would bear fruit to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The passage which we just read has many Old Testament allusions and prophetic fulfillment. It's important that we understand that uh, when we are reading our Bibles, that the whole Old Testament is a prism through which the light of God shines, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And in this passage that we have just read, as I said, it, there are many of these Old Testament allusions and fulfillments of prophecy. Let me quickly go through some of them before you as we begin looking at this passage. In Genesis chapter 49, we read of old Jacob, uh, before he dies, blessing his sons. And when he comes to Blessing Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding the foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. 
In 2 Kings chapter 9, we read of uh, Jehu's being anointed king, and the people spread their cloaks before him as he entered. Or in Psalm 118, which has uh, clearly uh, uh, is, is being nearly quoted in this passage, tells of God's people giving praise to God as a psalm of, of ascent on their way to Jerusalem. And they're calling out, save us, or Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That was Psalm 118, verse 25. Isaiah 62 is very similar in verse 11. It says, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. In Zechariah 9. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Malachi 3, Suddenly the Lord shall, shall come to his temple. All of these passages, Old Testament passages, it's like a prism coming at, at different angles, but then focusing right upon Jesus Christ. And uh, that's a reminder to us, I think, uh, from the outset, that we read the Old Testament in that light. That the Old Testament is promise. The New Testament is fulfillment and deliverance in Christ Jesus. Now, Mark is probably writing uh, most specifically uh, in, in his context, the first century, to the church in Rome. And it's pretty likely that uh, the Christians in Rome were very familiar with uh, the nobility, the, you know, the kings and, and nobles being surrounded by adoring crowds and shouting their, their accolades and their, uh, their tributes to these great ones. But what a difference, I think, as, as Mark records for us, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Because here is one who comes in, in gentleness and in humility, riding on a colt. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. We've been seeing for a while, Mark has been making clear that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, has been headed there, and uh, he has, has set his face like flint, and there's nothing that's going to sway Jesus from going to Jerusalem in uh, cha uh, chapter 8, 31, in 9, 31, in 10, verse 32, Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, and there they will arrest him and that the, uh, the Jewish leaders will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and that uh, they will mock him and spit on him. Jesus prophesied that this was happening, and yet he heads straight to Jerusalem, and the disciples are amazed. And now we see Jesus arriving and entering. And the first thing I want to say is that this is an intentional entrance into Jerusalem. 
the second thing I want to point out is that there is an emotion, the emotional reception of Jesus in Jerusalem. But first of all, it was intentional. This is an intentional entrance. Jesus wasn't walking. He, was, he, he intentionally rode into Jerusalem. Most people on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem would walk to Jerusalem. And many of the, uh, or several of the Psalms were, are called Psalms of Ascent, where people would be joining together with other people. Jews, Hebrews would be joining together with other Hebrews, and they would be walking to Jerusalem, and they would be singing together these Psalms of Ascent. But that's how they would enter Jerusalem. They, they would be walking into Jerusalem. But Jesus here is riding into Jerusalem. And it isn't because he's tired. It's not because he's, he, his legs are, are weary and he needs to take a rest, and so he sits on this colt. He is self-consciously fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's intentional, is my point. Jesus is intentionally doing this, particularly Zechariah 9, which I just read, where the king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what Jesus, by doing so, what he is doing is he is saying, here I am. That king that had been prophesied in Zechariah 9, here, here I am. I have arrived. I have entered into my city. You see, Jesus knew precisely who he was. And he knew precisely what he was about. In fact, you may recall in uh, Luke chapter 2, at the end of Luke 2, Jesus is 12 years old, and uh, he, with Joseph and Mary, had gone to Jerusalem for their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And uh, as they're returning back, after a couple days, three days actually, uh, Joseph and Mary realized that Jesus wasn't with them, and so they turned around, went back, and searched for Jesus and found him conversing with the scribes in the temple. And they asked him, and Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, at, at 12 years old already, Jesus knew who he was, and what he was about. And here we see Jesus knows precisely who he is. That's why I think Mark highlights for us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and that there was nothing that was going to sway him from that path. There was nothing that was going to move him off of that purpose. And what is that purpose? To save you and me, to save his people. There was nothing that was going to sway Jesus from that purpose for which he came into this world. In other words, he is intentionally entering Jerusalem, riding on this colt in order to be a ransom for many.
He now enters as the prophesied king, self-consciously saying, I have come. I have arrived. The wait is over. The king has come. But it's interesting, too, when you look at this passage that uh, Jesus instructs the disciples, going into the village, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Why did he ride on a colt on which no one had ever sat? And again, this is intentional. Now, some have argued that the reason that, that, that Jesus... Uh, sat on a colt on which nobody else had ever sat, is to show his power, his control over uh, nature. Here is an unbroken animal. Well, there might be an element of truth to that. I think it, it's more than that. I think it's deeper than that, even though that itself is... <laughs> a marvelous thing, that Christ indeed has control over all of nature, including an unbroken colt. But I think there's something more significant here. In Old Testament law, animals that were set aside for significant service in... Uh, the worship of God's people in Old Testament worship, Old Test the whole sacrificial system on Old Testament worship, those animals that were set aside for that were those that had never been used for any other purpose. So for instance, in Numbers 19, verse 2, it says this, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer, without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you see a very similar thing in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3. In other words, bring an animal that has been unused for any other service. In 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, when the ark is returned to Israel, the Lord tells them, prepare a new cart with two cows on which there had never come a yoke. An animal that is unused for any other business. And here is a foal. Never used for any other service. Set aside to carry the one who is to be worshipped. But then why a colt? Why did he choose to ride a colt into Jerusalem? Why not a, you know, a, 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 a mighty horse? Why not a charger? That would get people's attention. But I think here Jesus is testifying that he is a king like no other king. All the other kings, they would come in in their white chargers or their black chargers, you know, and see how victorious I am and uh, how worthy I am of your, uh, 
your adoration and adulation and accolades and tributes. Jesus doesn't do that. You see, by coming, riding on a colt, he is showing that his kingship is one of majesty and meekness, is one of power with gentleness, that his kingdom is one of sovereignty, but also with care. And that's important so that we can come to him. Well, that's precisely what Jesus said. That's precisely what he was, the point that he was making in Matthew 11, where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think as with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt, he is giving a visual lesson. You can come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can come to me because I am a king like no other with majesty and with meekness. Now that is true today, congregation. Jesus says to you this morning, you can come to me. You see, because when he went to the cross, that majesty and meekness was the most clearly seen. You know, Isaiah 53, which, of course, again, prophesied of Christ, says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, in, in humble, meek submission... Jesus gave himself as a ransom for many. He, as we have seen, has been throughout Mark. And as we're going to continue through Mark, we're going to see this continued relentless pursuit of Jesus to redeem his people. He was cut off from the land of the living. so that we may have life everlasting. You see, he could have called legions of angels. When he was mocked while he was hanging on the cross and they said, if you are the son of God, come down from there. He could have done it. <laughs> he could have easily come down from there. But he did not. This is kingly majesty in all of its glory in all of its wonder. It's not in all the pomp and the circumstance. It is grace and mercy to us who though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
This is what we're seeing with Jesus riding on a colt into Jerusalem. This is the glory of his meekness. He's a king who welcomes outcasts. He's a king who welcomes beggars. He's a king who welcomes rejects. He's a king who welcomes sinners. Like you and me. But he's not weak. (laughs) Don't ever think meekness means weakness. (laughs) He is not weak. He is meek. But as Zechariah 9 says, he is righteous, bringing salvation. That's important that we don't presume. And I think there are many people who may do that. Presume upon God. And say, how can a good God send anybody to hell? And they presume upon God's goodness and God's kindness, thinking that God is just going to sweep under the rug any sins and any rebellion against him that that we commit. God will never send me to hell. Don't presume. He is righteous. Bringing salvation. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Do you believe? You see, he rode on a colt into Jerusalem, saying, I am a king like no other. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Well, Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, goes directly to the temple. And again, I think that was very intentional. All of this, is my point is saying, Jesus is intentionally doing this, saying, here I am. I am the king. I have arrived. And now he comes into the temple, again, to fulfill prophecy in Malachi chapter, th- chapter 3, uh, where he will suddenly enter his temple. And, uh, and it says, interestingly, in verse 11, the last verse of, of our passage today, and when he had looked around at everything... What does that mean? Looked around at everything. Jesus is in the temple. And yet, if you just picture it, and he, he, he's looking. At, and, and what is he looking at? What is in the temple? Well, there's a lot of accruements, and there's a lot of, a lot of things there that, uh, you know, when you read the Old Testament, there are uh, 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 bowls and, 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 and all kinds of uh, uh, Things that, that, that were used for the worship of God and, and set in, in gold and silver. All of this is, and, and the beauty of the temple and everything that was housed in the temple was pointing to Jesus Christ. And he's looking at those, all those types and shadows. And he is the fulfillment of them all. It point, all of those were pointing to the reality of Jesus. But not only that is, Jesus is the temple. 
Remember, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. He was talking about his body. In Revelation chapter 21, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Can't help but think as Jesus is looking around the temple, he is thinking, I am the fulfillment of all of this. He has come to his temple. Well, there was a reception of Jesus, of course, uh, a wonderful, a triumphal reception. I want to say it was, a, it's, it was an emotional one. Uh, you know, we can ask the question, did the crowds really understand what they were saying and what they were doing? Look at verses 8 through 10 of our passage. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Did they get it? Did they understand? They're again, as I said before, quoting from Psalm 118, which is a definite, clear, messianic declaration. Psalm 118 is looking forward to the Messiah, the coming one. Did they get it? Did they understand? This is the one. This is the fulfillment. Or is it possible that they, they were speaking more than they really knew? Like Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas. In John 11, John records for us where Caiaphas says, to the, uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees surrounding him. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John tells us he spoke this, not understanding it, but he spoke it because he was high priest that year, and he spoke it prophetically, that Jesus was the one who would die for his people so that the whole nation would not perish. There, Caiaphas spoke more than he understood. And my question is, is that the case here, where the people are speaking more than they understood? Well, I think it is, actually. John tells us, uh, when John records the triumphal entry of Jesus, that the disciples didn't understand. This is in John chapter 12, verse 16. It tells us that the disciples did not understand these things until Jesus was resurrected and glorified. They didn't get, the disciples didn't understand it. My sense is that most likely, most of the people there did not understand fully what they were saying and what they were doing that they were probably swept along by a wave of emotion. Because very soon they would be calling out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. 
I think they were swept up in a wave of emotion, of excitement. You know, that's the danger, I think, of like Colosseum Christianity. <laughs> uh, you know, when you have an evangelist coming into a city and he goes to a Colosseum and has a big evangelistic crusade in the city. And I think many who come to that and who respond to that are caught up in a wave of emotion, but later find that what they were caught up in really didn't impact their inmost being. That they really didn't get it. You know, as long as Christ and Christianity appear triumphalistic, there will be no shortage of enthusiasm. But while the theology of glory is very attractive, the theology of the cross is an offense. Now, I certainly don't want to say that smaller is better. Um, don't want to give the impression that, you know, because we're faithful to God's word, because we hold to a theology of the cross that we are small and that that's in itself a good thing. The theology of glory most certainly is attractive. And the theology of the cross is most certainly an offense. And when the cross of Christ is proclaimed, and the call to us to take up our cross is proclaimed, that's when the crowds and the enthusiasm wanes. <laughs> we can be assured of that. That is true. Except in God's elect. Except in God's elect. We, as the old hymn says, we love to hear the story of Jesus and his love who gave himself, who went to the cross. This doesn't mean smaller is better. In Romans 7, John records for us a picture of heaven and of the saints who are before the throne. And he's, he, he describes that as a crowd that no one can number. A crowd that no one can number. From every tribe and nation and tongue and peoples. And do you know what they're saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to the Lamb. Jesus entered Jerusalem to be the Lamb of God, to take away our sins with righteousness and salvation. He came on a colt, saying, come to me, come to me. There's no other way 
but no other way is needed. Have you believed? Do you believe? Have you come to Jesus? Amen.